This week, we are going to start by reading three parables that Jesus tells in Matthew chapters 21 and 22. And we're picking up the story right after the triumphal entry and the clearing out of the temple. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, Jesus's first actions after entering Jerusalem were to denounce the temple and the religious leaders. And these stories that we're going to look at today are directed at that same target. There is a parable about two sons. There's one about a vineyard and one about a wedding banquet. And just as a word of context before we hear these stories, know that in the Old Testament, Israel is often referred to as the children of God. Israel was regularly referred to as God's vineyard. And one of the common pictures of Israel's future hope was of a celebratory banquet. So what these stories were referring to would not have been a mystery at all to Jesus's listeners. So this starts in Matthew chapter 21, verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two sons did the will of the father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him, and even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. And then this is jumping to chapter 22. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to call those who had been invited to the wedding banquet, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who have been invited, look, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they made light of it and went away, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his troops, destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main streets and invite everyone you find to the wedding banquet. Those servants went out into the streets and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing a wedding robe. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding robe? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. So we have these three stories, all about the kingdom of God, all about Israel, all ominous for the leaders of Israel, whom Matthew tells us know exactly whom Jesus is directing these threats at. And those leaders want to arrest Jesus, but they're afraid. So what can we learn today 
from this group of stories originally intended to warn the religious leaders of Israel in Jesus' day? Why did Matthew include them at a point where those religious leaders wouldn't have been nearly as relevant when Matthew was writing as they were when Jesus first told these little stories? We're going to work our way through five core theological insights that I think we can find in these stories when we look. First, God created a good world and expects good things from it. These are not stories about God saying, well, the world's gone to hell, nothing good going to come from it, just all brambles and thorns until I burn it all down. No, the landowner expects the vineyard to produce, to produce fruit and lots of it. The king expects there to be one heck of a party going on and then is disappointed when that isn't what's happening. Jesus has come to announce that the kingdom of God has arrived and goodness and life are available now, not someday, but now. Israel and then the church are supposed to be bringers of that goodness and life, the fruit of the vineyard in abundance, the party. So that's the first thing. Second, God isn't the one who does most of the work. This is an interesting but consistent theme in the Bible. God sets the conditions and then invites humans to join in. God gives this task to Adam and Eve in the garden. God gives the task to Abraham, to Abraham's descendants. God gives the task to the church. Our God is a collaborative God who would rather work with humans with the risk, the certainty really, that things will go wrong rather than doing it alone. For whatever reason, that seems to be a fundamental character trait of our God. The father in the first story tells his sons to go work in the fields. The landowner leases out the vineyard and then goes to another country. From that country, he sends first one group of servants, then another, and then finally his son to be his representatives. The king sends out servants once, twice, three times to invite people into the party that the king has had prepared. And God doesn't just send workers out. God sets up the workers to succeed. Jesus details all the ways the landowner sets up the vineyard to produce fruit. He plants it. He puts a fence around it, a watchtower, a wine press. It's all ready to go. The fruit should come. Does anyone want to do the work to produce the fruit? Third, God doesn't force anyone to join in. God invites. The father isn't marching his sons out to work. In fact, it doesn't seem like he even says anything to the son whose initial response is to be like, nope. Not going to do it, pops. This despite the fact that this is culturally uh, just not okay for a son to openly defy his father like this. More on that in a second. The wedding feast story is all about invitation after invitation going out to a wider and wider circle of guests. Our participation in and enjoyment of the kingdom of God is ultimately up to us. And the invitation goes out to all, even the tax collectors and the prostitutes, All who want to get to be a part of the party, they get to be part of the party, but it's their choice. This also seems like it's a fundamental character trait of our God. There is no compulsion, only invitation. Fourth, God gives every opportunity for people to join in, to accept the invitation at great cost to God's self. The actions of the stand-ins for God in these stories They all invite shame upon themselves in a culture that would do anything to avoid shame and preserve honor. I mentioned it just a second ago, but a father who allowed his sons to treat him the way the father in the story does would be seen as weak, shameful, a failure as a man. The actions of the landowner, they're the actions of a shameful fool. What the tenants do the first time around of beating and killing the servants 
who would, had come to collect the owner's rightful share of the produce, that alone was an act of open rebellion, a declaration of war, you might say. Any landowner of the day whose tenants treated his servants in such a fashion would have basically been required to exact vengeance immediately. It would have been the only way to restore his own honor in the eyes of his peers by showing that he was not someone who could be treated that way. To accept the sort of rebellion and insult without response would have been to accept lower status and shame. To accept it twice would be even worse. To send his son, after the tenants have already declared war against him, is to show himself to be a fool, worthy of ridicule. And yet he doesn't care. He gives the tenants chance after chance, even sends his son, though he must know what the result is likely going to be. Likewise, saying no to a party invitation just wasn't done in that day. It's an intentional insult. One commentator I read made the point that this scenario where the whole invite list refuses to come would only happen, basically, if there had been an intentional act of collusion by the invitees for the express purpose of shaming and insulting the king. And that, like we were just saying with the tenants, well, that's a dangerous way to treat a king, to insult and shame him. I was struck by how the king sends out the servants twice to the original invitees. They refuse to come once, humiliating him, but then the king opens himself to further humiliation a second time, before inviting all the others. And then he lowers himself even further by inviting the riffraff to his son's wedding feast. We should understand here the deep shame these actions would have carried in this culture. Jesus is going out of his way to show the willingness of God to stoop low to incur shame and humiliation and even death, all for the sake of widening the invitation to join in the kingdom of God. And this, by the way, would have been by far the most shocking and disturbing thing about these stories in their original context, that God is willing to be a fool for us. Because God cares that much about the goodness of the kingdom coming into the good world. And boy, oh boy, would we like for the stories to end there. And... Many people more or less operate as if they end there with a widening invitation to be part of the kingdom of God, but they don't end there. And so, fifth, those who choose not to join in the work of the kingdom, they don't experience the goodness of the kingdom. The king destroys the murderers. The landowner will kill the rebellious tenants and throw them out of the vineyard in the same way they treated his son. The man in the wrong clothes gets thrown out into the darkness. I will say again that Jesus' original hearers wouldn't have batted an eye at these parts of the story. Of course, that's how a landowner would treat his rebellious tenants. Of course, that's what a king would do in the face of such open rebellion. But for some of us, they're a bit uncomfortable. We want to, like Rob Bell did in Love Wins, focus on all those parts of the story that seem to point towards everyone not only being invited, but being included in the kingdom. But that would be to ignore the competing themes that are just as much a part of the story. These stories and the story of the Bible as a whole are the same. Many are called, Jesus says, but few are chosen. Narrow is the gate that leads to life, but wide is the path to destruction. What's interesting is that this idea that those who don't choose to participate in the kingdom of God don't get to experience the kingdom of God, it's completely obvious if we take a this-world view of things. Jesus' announcement of the kingdom, after all, was not a future-only kingdom. It was that the kingdom was here, now, open, join the party, experience life. 
And I think we all can bring to mind people who are not living a life characterized by the goodness and justice of God's kingdom, let's say. And so, of course, they aren't experiencing that life either. It's almost too obvious to even point out. Jeremiah, if you went through that book with us, was under no illusions that all would be a part of the kingdom of God. The vast majority would experience the consequences of their own choices. But then when we think about the eternal part of eternal life, the eternal life that's available now in the kingdom of God, things get a bit more squishy, (laughs) to use a technical theological term, squishy. We want what is reality here and now, that God gives us freedom to choose whether to participate in the kingdom of God or not. And if we choose not, then we don't. We want that not to apply eternally. This is the position often called universalism, that salvation will eventually be extended to all. But that isn't the story that Jesus tells here. The leaders of Israel, who had been invited to produce fruit in the vineyard, who were invited to the party, but who refused, they will be excluded. Not excluded from the invitation, excluded from the party that they refuse to attend. Those who choose to walk a path away from the party, away from life, will have their choices respected. Now, what about the poor guy who didn't have a wedding suit? He was there in the party. He hadn't walked away. What, what did he do wrong? I think it's helpful to remember that both fruit from like a vineyard and clothing are common biblical images for living according to the values of God's kingdom, according to God's goodness and justice. Think fruit of the spirit. Think clothe yourself in righteousness. In Revelation chapter 19, the church is described as the bride of Christ, clothed in fine linen, which are the righteous deeds of the saints, the people of God. The actions we take that build God's kingdom, that extend God's goodness and justice and life to the world around us, Those are, in this image, what the wedding clothes represent. So the man without those clothes, he's pretending he came to be at the party, but he isn't acting the part. He didn't actually come for a wedding party, so to speak. So to review, first, God created a good world and expects good things from it. Second, God isn't the one who does most of the work. Third, God doesn't force anyone to join in, but invites. Fourth, God gives every opportunity for people to join in at great cost to God's self. And then finally, those who choose not to join in the work of the kingdom, they don't experience the goodness of the kingdom. And we are given that same choice ourselves, of course, to join in the work of the kingdom, bringing God's goodness and justice to the world, joining in the party where abundance and life flow, inviting everyone to be a part of it with us and inviting again and again even at great cost to ourselves, knowing that God cares very much that the party would be full, that the vineyard would produce fruit in abundance. That's what these stories have to say to us today. And what we did in response to these stories when we were live together is we had a bit of a discussion time, some time to dive into the final point that I mentioned, which means we talked about hell. (laughs) which is one of those issues that's a real stumbling block for people when it comes to believing in God. And the parables Jesus tells in in this passage that we looked at today are, are a part of that. And so we wanted to give people a chance to unpack and discuss a little bit of what they had experienced growing up, what they had heard about hell, and what thoughts or ideas that they had now about the topic. And kind of to frame that discussion, I laid out what are basically three 
positions on the subject. And there's a bit of a spectrum among and between the three, but there's kind of three main places that people might land on the question of hell. The first, as I mentioned in the sermon, is universalism, that there is no hell because God's will is that all would be a part of the kingdom of God. And so somehow, some way, all will be part of the kingdom of God. And like I said, there are some different nuances to how exactly God accomplishes the universal inclusion. But at some point, God will override our choices and compel us to join the party if necessary. The main benefit to this position is that it seems to mesh easily with our understanding of God being a loving God, an inviting God, an inclusive God. The major problem is, as I said earlier, that there is a clear theme throughout scripture that while all are invited, not all accept the invitation. That evil and injustice are real things and that those who choose to walk down paths away from God are walking away from life and towards death. But even so, this position endures despite this, what I think is a fairly big problem. One of the reasons that it endures is that many are quite uncomfortable with option number two, the traditional view, so to speak, the eternal conscious torture option. Some of you have probably read Dante or had other experiences with the elaborate fiction that developed during the Middle Ages and medieval times of pointy horned demons wearing red pajamas and holding pitchforks and the like. Sadistic eternal torture sure doesn't seem to comport well with the picture of God that we get in the Bible either. I think this view of hell, or at least this version of it, has more to do with how medieval kings would torture their enemies than it has with how God would treat God's enemies. Again, there are nuances in how people conceive of hell. Not all people think about literal fiery pits um, and people burning for eternity. Um, Some Picture a more silent, immersive darkness and isolation, sort of a sensory deprivation and solitary confinement for eternity sort of torture. That wide range is possible because the Bible gives us only the vaguest of hazy outlines of any idea of what happens to those who walk away from the party. The Old Testament has nothing to say about it whatsoever. There are lots of this world consequences in the Old Testament and in the prophets, but not many after death consequences. And the reason for that is that for the most part, the Jewish people didn't think of humans as inherently immortal, like Greek philosophy or some Eastern religions do. Humans were embodied creatures who are given life by God. And if they're separated from that life-giving God, then they die. In the Old Testament, the land of death is kind of a shadowy, silent, dead sort of place. The New Testament does have stories like the ones we looked at today. Jesus talks about people being thrown into the outer darkness or into the fiery pit made for Satan and his demons. Jesus talks about weeping and gnashing of teeth. But that's basically it. We can say with some confidence, I think, that there are some who will be excluded, who will have walked away from the party, and that choice will be respected. But anything more than that is pretty sketchy with a lot of details left out. So, is some sort of eternal conscious hell a possibility? Certainly. Do we know anything about it? (laughs) Not really. And so some who look at the character of God and find it hard to square God's character with eternal torture, and then they look at the vagueness of what the Bible actually says about the fate of those who walk away from God, and they go for option number three. The theological word for option number three is annihilationism. The idea is, if humans get separated from God, and God is the one source of life, doesn't that mean they're just dead? If I got thrown into a pit of eternal fire, wouldn't I just 
burn up and be gone? The fire might keep going, but I sure wouldn't. (laughs) Some see this as heresy. It isn't. As I said, most if not all of the people who lived during and wrote the Old Testament would have almost certainly believed something like this. I have plans to dive into more depth on some of these details about this particular issue in a future Backdrop podcast, by the way. Um, So if you want more of me talking about what ancient people thought about death, don't worry, it's coming. But for now, in the New Testament, virtually everything that is said about what we might call hell is said in passages that are obviously figurative and not literal, like parables. Those are not literal stories. They're figurative pictures to make a point. They're still true. It's just Jesus is not talking about two actual sons who disobeyed their father. It's a story to to make a true point. Much of Revelation, likewise, is in more figurative than literal language. And the genre matters here because if we're going to build an entire theology around our God being an eternal torturer, I think we ought to have a really good reason for it. And so if the weeping and gnashing of teeth is not literal but figurative, representing the regret of those who miss out on the party, if the lake of fire is meant to represent the purifying fire of God that burns away evil and death to leave only the goodness and life of the kingdom, and not a literal lake of literal flames, if the outer darkness is meant to represent the silence of the grave, not someone literally looking around and seeing nothing forever, then what are we left with? we're left with a word that the New Testament often uses to describe the fate of such people after death. Not torture, destruction. They die, and they're dead. They have no life, because they chose paths that led to death and destruction. That is annihilationism. You may have noticed where my sympathies lie. (laughs) I don't think option one works biblically or practically. I think both option two and three could work biblically, but that number three works far better theologically, you might say. Could I be wrong? Yes, (laughs) because again, the Bible's very vague and figurative on this question. So with all that as a framework, we gave people space for discussion, again, to kind of talk about what did they grow up with around the idea of hell, and what are some of the thoughts or questions that they are working through in more recent days. So I would encourage you to think, think about that as well. If you have someone you could talk about it with, it would certainly make for cheery, dinner conversation. Thanks for joining us for our sermon this week. We hope to see you again soon. Bye.